It's January 4th, 2021. This is Rook. was a kid in the north of Iran, he fell in love with television and was able to access the American cable network MSNBC on a satellite dish. From that moment on, Fardod Farahzad, a self-described nerd, knew that his future was somehow in media. Today, still in his mid-30s, after a few years at BBC Persian, he has become one of the lead presenters at Iran International, anchoring a program called The Lead Show. Fardod Farahzad joins me for a feature interview, plus the Rook team is here on our first program of 2021 and there are letters to discuss too this is conversations from to and about the iranian diaspora for you i'm Gian gomeshi this is rook there. Welcome to episode number 73 of Rook. Salam Dustan Aziz. Here's hoping for a positive 2021. Hi to all of you listening in Iran, here in North America and around the world. We are at rookmedia.com. We're on an ongoing mission to build an a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. We're coming to you on SoundCloud, Instagram, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and Telegram in English and Farsi. Uh, we continue to be committed to finding and strengthening that connective tissue that unites us as people of Middle Eastern and Iranian descent around the world. And it's going to be kind of a heavy week for those of us in the global Iranian community, remembering, commemorating, reflecting on the horrific death of many of our peers, friends, and family members who uh, perished in the shooting of Flight 752 last year at the hands of the Iranian military. Uh, you know, on our first episode ever of Rook back in April of 2020, we dedicated our inaugural program to the victims of Flight 752 and their families. And on this Thursday's episode coming up, we will be dedicating the whole episode to a remembrance of those we have lost, an update on what information we have about what happened, and a discussion of how to move forward and keep their memories alive and make sure their lives were not lost in vain. Hi, Kian Jun. Hi, Jian Jun. Khubasti. Thank you. Nice to see you. Hi, Captain Reza. Hello, sir. Groovy Shaya. Salam. Salam. Durud. Uh, how was your uh, New Year's celebration, Shaya? Did you recite the entire Shahnameh at, uh, at midnight and dance to Aaron Afshar? <laughs> Actually, I did that for Yalda. <laughs> for New Year, no, I, I pra- actually, actually, I record a new song with my favorite singer. Oh. Yeah. And I'm really excited. Shakira? <laughs> no, who's your favorite singer? No, Milad. Milad. Oh, of course. Yes, the great yes, Milad. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to hear it. Me too. That's fabulous. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, um, that's, uh, th- that's great. Were you doing that at midnight on New, Year- New Year's Eve? Exactly. So do you, this was my mom brought this up, or my mom said this for years. She didn't bring this up. She's been saying this for years. 
she would say at Noru's time, like at Saatatafi, like whatever you're doing at that time, uh-huh. you'll be doing for the rest of the for, year. Yes, yes. Is that you, do you, do you? So you believe that for traditional January first New Year's too? Uh, no, no, no. But you wanted to be doing that yeah. on on. Uh, that's beautiful. Uh, some people want to kiss at midnight. Some people want to <laughs> and drink. I was you, are, you're, you want to be with Milad. How did your girlfriend <laughs> feel about that? <laughs> she was okay with that. Yeah. Yes, okay. Yes. All right. Well, <laughs> excellent. Uh, and uh, Keon, you and the doctor. Uh, yes, yes. We had a did you quiet. practice practice medicine, as they say, uh, uh, at New Year's Eve? We had a lovely little... little um, uh, New Year's Eve at his parents' house, actually. So, oh, yeah, yeah. It was uh, very irony. Okay. Yeah. Uh, do you have to be on good behavior? I what? have to. Yes. You're yes, a bit of a bull was, in a china shop. I I, yeah, I, I'm. I'm worried about you. <laughs> Somebody have to teach you etiquette lessons and stuff friends when you go to have, these people. Friends have described me as a classy animal. On the outside, I look very classy, but <laughs> yes. on the inside, I'm just. Yeah, a, not so sure about yeah. the classy on the outside either. But, uh, so I'm. But you are lovely and smart, yes. and you're, I put you're, on a good act. You yes, you're <laughs> tassil kade. Yeah. Yes. So you're her, his parents like you. I was on my best behavior. Excellent, yes. excellent. Well, that's uh, very nice. And Captain Reza, same, same. Spent time with family, friends, and mm-hmm. uh, you were also with uh, Keon's boyfriend's parents. I, in fact, <laughs> Keon was on her best behavior. I <laughs> yes, must say yes, that yeah. night. But uh, no, I was with my own girlfriend and uh, with a bunch. With of your friends. own girlfriend? Okay, right. excellent. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. he has yeah. his own. Yes, God. yes, I got my yeah. own. I don't need to pick right. back on. How that. was yours? Yeah, uh, you yours? know, I had a good few days. Arsenal. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I was going to say. I mean, I had a nice New Year's Eve, a really nice one. But but Arsenal is on a winning streak. Yes. And you know, I posted after they their first win after a while against Chelsea. I posted on social media a picture of my Arsenal shirt, and since then they've been winning. Mm. Ah. I think it's related. Maybe. Oh yeah, I think You're so. One of those guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're pretty superstitious, long-suffering Arsenal fans. Today we have a very special guest for our first episode of 2021. The former BBC Persian anchor, current. Uh, popular presenter at Iran International, Fadad Farahzad. Uh, he has a huge social media following. He's in London, but has many fans in Iran. We'll get to him and hear his story. He's also very handsome. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. I've noticed. He's quite the looker. Oh, yeah. okay. Uh, yes, and, and, and by the way, for those who missed it, last week on our New Year's Eve episode, number 72, we had the launch of a new regular segment with the great Chef Hosare called Rook Hospitality. Um, and uh, very excited about that. If you haven't checked out his first segment, uh, go listen to the last episode. We encourage you to do so. There's also It's All Persian to Us with Kion Nadimi on that episode. But there's a great theme song that I want to highlight. For those who missed it, uh, the, the, the Chef Hoss theme song, <laughs> the Hospitality theme song. Go ahead, Shai. Can you play it? Yeah. yeah. This is your chef Hassare. And this is Rok The use of the cutlery, the spoons <laughs> Adorable. is who like did fabulous. <laughs> who knows who did that? Um, we learned everything we need to know about kashk, which is uh, like an Iranian version of uh, buttermilk and sour cream combined. Yeah, right? sure, that definition works. 
Okay. Like fermented yogurt, like dairy. Some, it that? led to a long conversation with my mother about yogurt and kashk. This is what Chef Hossare is good for. He leads people back to their parents, questioning the, how the osh was made. Uh, so if you haven't heard the episode uh, and you want to hear about everything you want to know about Kashk and some fun uh, while doing it, Hospitality, the first episode was uh, uh, our last one, number 72, if you want to check out that um, version of Rook. And before we get to our guest, I was also looking at our year and analytics of where our audience is and our demographics uh, as Rook has grown. So my question uh, for everybody is of Captain Reza, because Captain Reza knows the stats. Do you know where the top cities in the world are for Rook listeners? I'm going to give you the, the uh, say the top four. I don't want to stay here all day. So, so what would be mm, in the, in the top four? Tehran, Toronto, let's say mm, uh, Sydney, Australia, mm-hmm. and Los Angeles. Okay. And do, do you have an order for those? Uh, Tehran at the top, Toronto comes close Okay. Second. And Shia? Uh, kind of similar to what Kian said, Toronto at top, mm-hmm. then uh, Los Angeles, uh-huh. then Tehran, okay. then, uh, I don't know, maybe London or some city in Germany. Where did you live in Canada before you lived in Toronto? Vancouver. Yes. Oh. Number four Ooh. is Vancouver. Number three is Los Angeles. Number two, top city for Rook listeners, Toronto. Number one is Tehran. That's interesting. Yeah, our wow. our city with the most listeners is Tehran. Isn't that strange? Wow. And uh, I mean, we're doing an English show, but clearly, there are people who mistakenly have been listening to it in <laughs> in Iran. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. No, I guess there's a. Isn't that interesting? Very interesting. Yeah. So uh, we have uh, we also have some a bunch of letters. Yes, yes. Sometimes we, do. we get letters from Iran, so we know that uh, a bunch of them are from Tehran. Clearly, uh, so we'll get to letters coming up. Captain Reza, Groovy Shia, the fabulous Keon. We'll get to that. Let's get to our feature guest. My feature guest today is a prominent Iranian British journalist, anchor, and entrepreneur. Fardad Farahzad was born in Bandar Anzali, Iran, in the 1980s, and fell in love with television as a kid. By the time he was 17 years old in 2003, he moved to the UAE to study at the Ajman University of Science and Technology at Dubai University. Faradad started his journalistic career working for an educational and scientific network called Wind in Dubai. He also set up his own little TV network. He then started reporting from Dubai for BBC Persian, the website from 2005. And by 2008, moved to London to start working for the newly launched BBC Persian TV. Faradad anchored and covered many major Iranian and international stories for the network, including Iran's nuclear program, the Arab Spring, the 2012 United States presidential election, the Brussels bombings, and the Nice truck attack. After 10 years at BBC Persian, around 2016, Faradad resigned from BBC Persian and is now the host of The Lead Show on the Iran International TV Network. He's also the founder of Your Time TV, a decentralized satellite TV channel and platform for content. We'll learn more about that. But first, right now, Faradad Farazad joins me from London, England. Hello, sir. Hello, Jean. Thanks for inviting me. It's a good. And I like how you pronounce my name so Persian. You know. <laughs> oh, uh, was you, it? You have this very North American accent, and then suddenly Love that. You're the first person to call my accent good. People laugh at that. I don't know. 
Um, it's it's a it's a pleasure to have you on the program. You know, I see you on in Iran International. You're in this gorgeous studio, and I think Fadot, it can't be easy to be working at the network in the midst of a pandemic and lockdown that has hit England in particular pretty hard. How complicated is it to be leaving the house and broadcasting from the network each day? It's very complicated. It, it's absolutely insane these days, especially as you probably know, there is a new uh, uh, virus in the UK that has mutated and it's spreading even faster than the previous one. So it's it's it. The procedure is really complex. We try to wear masks as much as possible. There are very little people in studio, just the very essential ones. And uh, since today, uh, I'm not even going to studio until just a couple of hours before the broadcast. Right. And even traveling in London must be kind of weird because it's been on and off for the last few weeks and months locked down, right? That's right. Although, surprisingly, I, I, I think a lot of people are not really paying as much attention at, as they should. I can see a lot of people are not wearing masks. They're taking public transport to go and see their family. You know, it, I think during this pandemic, the countries that were less democratic, they did better because people are listening better to their dictators than in democracies. Or countries that are just used to uh, accepting and listening to, to, to what the government has to say. I mean, Southeast Asia, they, you know, uh, yeah. I don't know if those are dictatorships, but they're certainly doing a great job in places like uh, Taiwan and Vietnam, etc. They're the model for the world. You're right. You know, you've said your real mission in, in terms of what you want to do as a broadcaster is to open a window to Iranians to a world they don't have access to. Tell me about that imperative in wanting to be the broadcaster you are. I think uh, we, we have this unique position that uh, we are broadcasting to a country that is really isolated, but it's not exactly like North Korea. So people have access to satellite TV. They have internet, even though there are censorship, but they know how to go around it. And But they don't have really access to impartial, professional uh, news and journalism and we have this great opportunity the very few networks that are out there to broadcast to Iran and I think we should really use this privilege to the best possible way we can uh, I know it's not easy because we are broadcasting to a country that doesn't even allow us to come and report from inside the country that their authorities they hate us if i go to iran or any of my colleagues go to iran we're going to get arrested immediately but then we have to be fair and impartial to them as well so it's a very awkward situation but it's also very uh, reward rewarding because you have this unique position to open a window to millions of iranians inside iran to see the rest of the world and also see their leaders from uh, another perspective that it's not available inside the country. I want to come back to the paradox of broadcasting to and for a country that you don't you don't really have access to. Let me get to that a little later. But uh, on this point about fair and balanced, I mean, you've said it is your ongoing mission to bring uh, to not bring an agenda to your broadcasting to 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 be as fair as possible. That is, of course, a laudable goal for most journalists, and it's shared around the world. Is it somehow harder to achieve in Iranian media? I think it's difficult everywhere, even in democracies like Canada or the United States or here in in the UK. But it's even more difficult in Iran, where we are broadcasting to a country that they don't allow us to go and visits, uh, let alone to report. They don't talk to us, and uh, yet there are 
state recognized internationally recognized government and you try to give them the you know a fair and balanced uh, time as well uh, so it's really difficult to be impartial not to act as an opposition but also uh, reflect their opinion as well it, it's 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 extremely difficult comparing I, to anywhere else in the world i guess even the nomenclature even the lexicon is difficult right like do you call do you call the government of Iran the government or the authorities or the regime or the, <laughs> you know, I, I, do you have, um, I, I'm sure at BBC Persian they did. Do you also at Iran International, do you have standards for what you're supposed to call the government of Iran? Well, I mean, Iran International has a bit more flexibility, if you like, but I mean, nevertheless, whether we like it or not, it's an, it's an internationally recognized government. It's a member of the United Nations. Uh, they act like like a rogue state, if you like, but nevertheless, it's they are the ones who have power in Iran. So, I mean, I tend not to use the word regime. Uh, I mean, I might use it from time to time, but, you know, at the end of the day, you want them to watch you and listen to you as well as much as possible. And obviously, Why even though it's just... Why do you want them to listen to you? Because I think it's important even for, for your worst, worst enemies to see the other perspective as well, that there are people who are really suffering, that mm. what they're doing is just not right. You know, this is weird. It's, it, Iran is a very unique country. Right. There are many dictators in the world. There are countries that are suppressing their people, but Iran is really strange to the extent that they suppress their own people and they try to intervene in other countries' affairs. It's just very unique. And, and we'll get to what it's like dealing with the audience uh, in, in a few minutes. But I, but I imagine you sort of get it from all sides, right? You, you hear from people saying, why are you legitimizing this government by not calling them a regime and not using every moment to, to demonstrate against them? And then from others saying, why do you only cover the bad stuff? Why don't you uh, act more respectful towards uh, the foreign minister or whatever, right? That's right. I mean, it's a difficult balance to make. And... Uh Listen, we don't get it right all the time. We have our flaws. I make mistakes. And that's, I think, part of the business. It's normal because because of this weird situation we are in, it's extremely difficult to act like a, just a traditional broadcaster broadcasting news to, to a country that is acting normally like the UK. I mean, for instance, we, you talked about BBC. BBC Persian is very different than BBC News, you know, and we try to bring the same standards that BBC News has with regards to the UK government, to the Iranian government, but it just doesn't work. It's mm -hmm. too, it's apples and oranges, you know. And of course, when you're dealing with human rights, um, I mean, even in your social media, how can you not be aghast at something like Flight 752, right? It's not, it's, it's, it's not something that objectively you can be impartial about. It's a horrific story, right? Absolutely. It's horrific. But, but the art of the Iranian government is they, they have people like uh, Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Zarif that pretends that Iran is a normal government. And when you listen to him, he speaks good English. You know, he can articulate himself very well. Yes. And for, for, there are moments that you think, Wait a second. Maybe I'm making a mistake. Maybe it's a normal government. Is it? Is it not? Uh, but then you see that the level of hypocrisy and uh, the way that he talks and he presents Iran is totally different from what's inside the country. And quite often, Western journalists, when they talk to people like Javad Zarif, 
they 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 can't really dig into what's happening inside the country because I mean it's understandable they have a researcher they do some basic research and give it to the presenter or reporter and they have no access to the country and it just leaves the situation on the surface you can't dig into what's really happening Absolutely. in Iran and he's very well spoken for the for the person who's not um who doesn't have the depth of knowing exactly what's, what might be happening in Iran. Uh, he just seems like a very well-spoken spokesperson for uh, yeah, I mean, last, government. I mean, just, just last week, he had an interview with Tulut News, an Afghan TV channel. And for the first time, the, 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 the interview, the person who was doing the interview was Afghan, so he was talking in Persian. And it made it even more difficult for Zarif to, uh, you know, to escape the answers. And, you know, for instance, the, the reporter asked him, uh, well, the Iranian supreme leader is not directly elected by the people. And Zarif's answer was, well, so is in the United States where you have the Electoral College. You know, this is so Iranian <laughs> way of answering. You know, you're comparing the Iranian supreme leader with the United States democracy. And for a second, you think, for God's sake, you know, just be honest. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, <laughs> Take take me back for a second. Let's go. We'll come back to this, uh, uh, the state of the world and the state of broadcasting. But take me back to when you were a little kid growing up in Bandar Anzali. Um, t- tell me first of all. Tell me about your experience growing up in a small city in the north of Iran. What were you like as a kid? I mean, I was lucky because I had a computer quite early when I was a teenager, and uh, not uh, much later I had access to internet. And my father was uh, a big fan of satellite TV, so we had this huge satellite in our. Uh, uh, in our building and we had access to initially foreign TV channels and then later on Iranian TV channels in Los Angeles. I knew that that town is too small for me. I wouldn't, I couldn't see myself living there for, for the rest of my life. So as soon as I could, I just escaped and went to Dubai. Were you inquisitive as a kid? Were you a, was was the six-year-old, the 10-year-old Fardad uh, walking around uh, asking questions like a reporter? I think so. I think so. I mean, at school, I remember I used to grill my uh, religious teacher a lot about God existence and questions like that. That but you <laughs> wow, were not you were going to deep. Ask, okay. ask in Iran. Yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't get myself killed in Iran, <laughs> thankfully, for those seventeen years. But that, but that, but you had the, um, uh, the the wherewithal to ask those kind of questions as a kid, huh? I know, but but the, the funny thing because in Iran you learn to act differently inside and outside, you know, whether it's your mom wearing hijab outside and not inside or talking about politics inside and not the same way you would talk outside. I think I learned from very early age how to ask the question, not to necessarily offend the other person, but also, you know, touch their nerve, if you like. (sighs) And there's a story that, I mean, you're in this small town in northern Iran um, you, you end up watching or you, you had somehow had access to the American cable political channel, MSNBC. Is, is that yeah, true? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why, because MSNBC is a cable network. You're not supposed to receive it f- free to air on satellite. No. But somehow. Even people in North America can't get MSNBC unless that, that, they. That, that, right. That's right. But for some reason, I think it was probably a feat for U.S soldiers in middle east or a transmission for another contribution i don't know why was what was the reason but somehow i randomly got this frequency and it had msnbc on it 
And I was fascinated by their graphics, the way they were presenting the news. And I was comparing it to, you know, local news channels and Iranian TVs in Los Angeles. It was like an ocean away. Right. So, so MSNBC was the network that made me really interested in news broadcast. I mean, it's much more, I think it's, it always was a liberal network, but it's a, it's a lot more ideological now, especially in the, uh, after the Trump years. But, um, but, but did that have an effect on you? Did you, was the fact that you were watching a, a cable network that um, was taking a position on American politics uh, interesting to you as a kid? To be honest, I think back then I didn't really know much about being conservative or liberal. I was 15, 16 years old watching this fascinating American network. I was more interested in their graphics and the way they were presenting the news than their editorial policies, if you like. It was later on that I realized, oh, okay, so in the States you have liberal networks like MSNBC and then conservative ones like Fox News and CNN was impartial relatively back then, but CNN is the new MSNBC right now. Farhad, if I asked your your family and friends, uh, uh, who when you were growing up, I, I mean, would it, would it have been clear to them, or would they say now that it was clear to them that you were going to grow up to be a a famous news anchor and TV presenter? I think they would know that I would do something with television. Uh, it wouldn't necessarily be presenting or reporting because I like every aspect of this industry. Broadcasting is just my day and night. Um, I even used to make uh, animations, you know, cartoons when I was a kid, with drawing like a dozen, uh, thousands of pictures and recording them frame by frame to animate something. Or later on, when I moved to Dubai, I remember, uh, because when, when, when I was in Iran, obviously, we wouldn't call a TV in Los Angeles. It would be very risky. But when I was in Dubai and I knew that the Iranian authorities can't like, listen to my calls, I called the uh, NITV, which was the first Iranian satellite TV yeah. channel in Los Angeles. Well, hang on. Let, t- let me get to Dubai, because I, that, that, I, I know that story, and I'm going to ask you about it. Okay. But I'm still thinking of you in, in Iran. I mean, you know, I, I really believe, I, I, if I haven't said this before on the show, I'm sure I'll say it again, which is that, because it's one of my mantras in life, that, that one of the big tricks of being successful in life is knowing what you want to do and the, and the younger you are when you know what it is that you love or you want to do the, the, the easier life can be for you or the more you can ascend to, 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 to doing things the way you want to do them did you I mean it seems like you didn't you weren't confused like most Iranian kids would be like I've got to become a mechanical engineer and then a doctor and then maybe I could do media I mean it seems like you just knew is that true uh, kind of, but it was my hobby. To, to be to to be fair, uh, the, the the thing that I was more interested to than even broadcasting was uh, programming and coding. So I was a bit nerdy in my earlier years, if you like, earlier years. Uh, but somehow this actually helped me uh, later on in life because I knew a little bit about the technicality of things as well. So. I could create things or build things that, you know, would cost me more. For, for instance, when I first started in Dubai in this wind, small TV channel, wind, wind TV, we hadn't had a teleprompter and I just made one because I <laughs> kind of knew how to make it. <laughs> That's awesome. So your, your family, uh, uh, just to complete the story of you in Iran, your family moves to Rasht when you're, you're 13. And by the time you're 17, you leave Iran to go to Dubai, as you've said. You... 
you've always you you know you've maintained that you always wanted to leave Iran. What was the main precipitant for what for you wanting to leave the country of your birth? I just want freedom, I, and I still want more freedom. You know, anywhere I go, I, I, freedom is so fundamental for me. It's even more important than democracy for me. I want people to be as free as possible, not only me but anyone else. Whether it's what you're gonna put in your body or what religion you want to practice, or so, so you're one of those people. Like we had a, a guest on a few weeks ago named Masora Bari, who's a, um, a fitness instructor and a, and a Instagram influencer who's also in London now. You know, for her, being in Iran felt like she was in a cage. That that's the way it felt for you as well. Exactly, exactly. That's how it was. And uh, I mean, when when you are in the cage. You don't know a lot about the outside world, but you know you are in a cage, you know? And once you're liberated, then you realize, okay, these are the freedoms I hadn't had when I was in it, that cage. Is it ironic that you you didn't really love Iran growing up there, but that you end up dedicating your life, so far at least, outside of Iran, to broadcasting to people inside Iran? <laughs> I mean, it's not that I didn't love Iran and I, or, or I don't love Iran. I, I mean, I like Iran like many other countries. I'm not patriotic, to be uh, fair, uh, not to Iran, not to any other country. I mean, my parents happened to have sex in Iran and I became Iranian. They could be in Singapore. I would be a Singaporean now. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, I have history there. You know, I grow up there. So I have some attachment to that country. And that's the language I speak. So if I if I if I could speak Japanese, maybe I would broadcast in to Japan. Uh, but uh, I think it makes it even more interesting because Iran is such an isolated country and I have this opportunity to bring the word to uh, many Iranians. I think it makes it more more interesting than broadcasting to to the UK, for instance, where people have access to free media anyways. I think you're being, I, I don't totally believe you. I, I don't believe that it would be the same for you if you spoke Taiwanese to broadcast to Taiwan. I, I think that there's some level of investment in there for you, um, maybe especially because you felt like you had to leave this country. Uh, or am I going too far? Am I thinking that there's an emotional and psychological element to this that, that you don't feel? You might be right. You might be right. I mean, maybe one of the reasons is I want to show to the people inside the country that, you know, there can be an alternative, uh -huh. you know, the world can be a better place. And I mean, I tend not to compare governments with each other. I hate when people do that. Oh, look how great the UK government is comparing to your government. I'm, I mean, I'm a skeptical towards all governments around the world. Obviously, the Western ones, the ones that are democratic are better. But nevertheless, governments all around the world, they are the only entities that have the legal monopoly of using force. And that's a scary power to have. And I want people anywhere in the world, especially in places like Iran and Afghanistan, to know, you know, it's very dangerous to let someone else to make decisions for your life, especially when they have guns in their hands. Mm -hmm. So just speak for yourself. Try to make some changes and be more free. And there is other ways of living than the ones that your government is portraying for you. It does sound like freedom is paramount to you. You're, are you a libertarian, small L? Yeah, I am with a small L. Yeah, I have no political affiliation, but I, I'm a classical liberal. You yeah. know, I believe in, in freedom as much as possible. I The best decisions I can make are for myself and my family. I don't want to make a decision for you, and I definitely don't want you to make a decision for me. Hmm. 
you had a lot of gumption in your in your teens. You had a lot of confidence. I, I, I'm curious where it comes from. It's, you alluded to this a second ago. I cut you off, and I didn't mean to, but I, I really wanted to hear the story. You go to, to, to Dubai, and you end up calling a Los Angeles Irani network, TV network from Dubai and basically telling them that you can contribute to, the, <laughs> to what they're I broadcasting. I mean, I know it's my quite poru, you know? Like, like crazy. I was, <laughs> I was dying almost when I called. And it's funny. They connected me to the... Uh, channel's owner, Ziata boy, who uh, is now a good friend of mine, he was an Iranian singer and the owner of that channel. I'm, I mean, within a few seconds after calling NITV, they connected me to their uh, CEO, if you like. So I was like really excited that I got this connection. And you know, TV back then was a big deal. It wasn't like today that we have dozens of Iranian TV right. channels. It was right. one and only network, uh, maybe one more. Uh, and when I had my first weather forecast that I made for them and they broadcast it on their network, I was over the moon. So how did, I mean, where did that confidence come from to be able to, to make that call, do you think? I don't know. Um, I think I've, I've always been a little bit of a maverick, I guess. <laughs> Good for you. You also set up Dubai Live TV while you're there. This is in your early 20s. You're a, a kid from Iran. You're in Dubai, and you set up a little TV network. What, what was that? What was Dubai Live TV? Well, Dubai Live TV was a slightly later, actually, when I moved to the UK. Oh, that's later um, you did that. Okay. Yeah, that's later. But, I mean, I always re- maintain my relationship with Dubai. I feel like I used to go back and forth before at least this COVID-19 situation. Um, so we launched a TV channel in, I think it was 2012 or 13 with a friend of mine in Dubai. It was a commercial uh, venture, if you like. It, it wasn't anything that I was, you know necessarily too proud of it wasn't something editorially valuable but uh, it was a tv that was dedicated to the small businesses and restaurants and hotels in dubai we would go and make like small features about a restaurant and it would be like a product placement instead of having advertisement so all the tv channels content were about dubai it was something like one of these magazines you you know get on uh, petrol stations about where to dine like right. okay magazine or right, hello magazine right. but on, on a tv version of that so you as you say you did move to the uk this is in 2008 you leave dubai you move to the uk you end up working on air with the the newly launched bbc persian tv before that it was basically a website it was a it was an online service it go it becomes a television channel you're working on it this must have been a huge move for you how did you adjust to not just moving to London, but suddenly being known as one of the faces of a of a new TV network? I think it was the most important, uh, you know, transition of my life and my career when I moved to the UK and joined BBC Persian. I was in love with BBC brand from a young age. And uh, I remember when I used to work in that small TV channel in Dubai, a friend of mine had a connection with some staff of BBC Persian in London. He used to download their voice messages in Dubai and send it to them by uh, by email, I guess. And I made this first video report and I asked him, can you send it to London? Maybe they like it because they don't have any original content. They only dub BBC words, English reports. And he said, sure, he sent it and they liked it. And I did a few more. Um, that's how it started. So when I, when I heard that they're launching a Persian TV channel, I got super excited because a year before that they've launched BBC Arabic. And I remember I used to watch BBC Arabic's launch a million times a day on YouTube. And I was thinking how BBC Persian TV is going to look like. I watched BBC Arabic's launch so many times <laughs> that I actually memorized their opening 
line. And years later, when I first when I saw the presenter that did that first broadcast, even though I don't really speak Arabic, I read it back to her, and she was like, "What?" I still remember. Wow, I have no idea what you just said, but uh, I mean, me too. I, the lahja was excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, but, but on this note, you know, you'd be you'd be an interesting person to ask about this because it's really not that long ago. It's you're talking about twelve years ago, and yet right. the media landscape has changed very significantly, not just around the world, but specifically when it comes to Iranian networks based in the diaspora in just the last decade or so. Can you tell us how it's grown? from your perspective i think uh, it, it i mean i had a show about this few days ago that initially it started uh, with with an accident really in los angeles when nitv which was a local tv broadcasting to north america only for some reason their uh, their um, service provider in florida made a mistake and they turned around their signal to another satellite that had coverage in iran and suddenly iranians had access to this tv in los angeles and everybody was wow there are people with no hijab and they're not pro-regime and they're talking persian from other side of the world and we can watch it in iran that was the moment it started but for 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 the first few years it was all these small tv channels small budget broadcasting to iran Till BBC Persian launched, and it changed the landscape of TV channels in Iran forever. And now there are so many new channels, mostly based in London, like Manoto, like Iran International, that have a big chunk of the Iranian market in their hands. What do you think that, I mean, this would be an entire show or a series that we would need to do to really mine this, but if you could say it, you know, in brief, what do you think the impact of these networks, uh, Iran International that you're at, Manotou, BBC Persian, uh, what has been the impact of that on Iranians or Iranian culture, uh, both inside Iran and around the world? I think Iranians have a much better picture of how the rest of the world is today than you know, many years ago, I don't know, I mean, you didn't live in Iran, but I remember there was a time that we had to hide VHS tapes, you know, uh, f- uh, moving it from home to home to watch one of, you know, movies that were produced in the States, you know, for for the 20th time. And we had no idea that one day we can watch this high quality uh, content live from other side of the world. It's very difficult for any government today comparing to 15, 20 years ago to not let its citizens to see what's happening around the world. And these TV channels, I think, whether we like them or not, they've changed Iranian perspectives about the rest of the world, about themselves, about their governments. Uh, And I think Iranians are partly because of networks like Manito are more Western, if you like. Than what than what they were. But, but you're 15, broadcasting to ago. not just Iranians in Iran, but Iranians around the world. Do you, when you're doing the lead on Iran International, are you thinking about uh, pretty much Iranians in, in in Iran, or are you thinking about the Iranian that's in in Calgary or in Manchester or in Berlin or in uh, in Los Angeles? I think the, the the most. I mean, most of your focus is on Iran, obviously, but I think. Uh, Many Iranians who, especially those who live uh, very far from Iran in places like the west coast of the United States, they obviously don't have uh, uh, an up-to-date picture of what's happening in Iran. So I always have them in my mind as well um, to give them a picture of what's happening in Iran, what can they expect, what's happening for the loved ones inside the country. 
Farhad, BBC Persian is considered to set the standard, I suppose, for Farsi language broadcasting in the diaspora. But, but it also gets, as you know, no shortage of criticism from Iranians for its programming or per any perceived political bent. I mean, it's been called Ayatollah BBC. Was that hard for you whilst working there, or did you realize that that comes with the territory? I think uh, part of it was normal, but to be honest, a uh, few years ago, before this social media explosion, it was a slightly different. There were criticism about BBC ever. You know, even after the revolution, a lot of people were saying BBC Persian radio was responsible partly for the Iranian revolution because they broadcast uh, Khomeini's speeches or they, they reported about the demonstrations in Tehran. I don't know to which extent that's true or not. I mean, working with the BBC, it has its, it had, it, and it still has its flaws. They make mistakes. We make mistakes, uh, not only BBC, Iran International, anywhere else. But the overall, uh, at least the editorial policy is right. I think individuals make mistakes, but it's not, I don't think it's to the extent that it's portrayed. And the fact that it's not only those who are saying uh, BBC is I to love BBC, there are other people who are saying uh, BBC is, uh, you know, trying to overthrow the Iranian government, those who are pro-regime. There are those who are saying BBC is anti-Mujahideen uh, al or vice versa. Yeah. So as long as you are getting an equal number of, uh, you know, <laughs> criticism from all sides, I think you are doing your job right. That doesn't mean that there are no, no mistakes. Uh, there are mistakes, but you know, the more voices, the better. I think if 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 a group of oppositions they think what BBC is doing is wrong or what Iran International is doing wrong, the best way to fix that is, uh, you know, try to bring an alternative. I know it's not easy, but you know, it's doable. Well, you told me once that Iranians are alien to impartial news. I think we alien are alien to impartial news. Explain what you mean, but but also, I, I suppose, why why are Iranians this way? Because for many years we lived under dictatorship, we we, we learned that um, the TV channel is broadcasting what the state wants to say, or you are opposition and you just condemn the government uh, 24-7. The fact that you can be fair and balanced and say, you know what, this is what Trump is saying, this is what Biden is saying, and there you go, you know, you make your decision. I'm not saying we are doing that all the time. Obviously, everybody has bias. It, 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 it's it's a fantasy that journalists are not biased. We try to, I, I mean, anytime I go and sit, I tell myself, you know, you have your politics, you have your opinion, put them aside. If you bring it on your show, you're a pig. I, I tell that to myself, but can I really do that? I don't know how successful I am. And different journalists have different, you know, standards. Um, so it's not easy, but the more we can hear from more voices, the better our decision is going to be. You know, it's no secret that Iranian officials have had a tendency to harass the families of their targets, uh, political activists and prisoners, etc. But uh, in, in recent years, the BBC has reported that Iranian police and officials have been harassing BBC staff, uh, arresting, questioning, intimidating their relatives in Iran. Was, was your family pressured by the authorities in Iran? I had my fair share of that too, um, although I, I have this luxury of uh, not having my immediate family inside Iran. Uh, but it happened to me when they went after my uh, very old ex-girlfriend many years ago and they took her cell phone and took all the pictures she had. Yeah, it happened to me as well, 
but you know there are there are journalists who had worse than that uh, for instance uh, Masi Ali Najad you know her brother is in jail because of what she does yes. and uh, the other uh, journalist uh, uh, the other week uh, Ruhollah Zam uh, which there are criticisms about his journalism, but that's not the point. He was kidnapped from Iraq, taken to Iran, and he was executed. This is insane. I mean, it doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. Not because governments are not capable of. It doesn't mean that the United States government cannot kidnap Edward Snowden in Russia. They have the resources if they want to. It's just not normal. Governments don't do that. You know, you don't go to a third country and kidnap a citizen and then execute him. Yes. It's um, uh, it it never gets uh, um, it never gets less shocking hearing these these stories or knowing about them. What what was the reaction of your your fans, your followers, when you left BBC Persian, and I suppose when you started to work for Iran International? Well, I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of my fans were were shocked, uh, but uh, I think it was the time I did that for ten years. And I always wanted to launch this uh, Your Time TV. From 2009, when the Iranian presidential election didn't go well and there were protests in Iran and we were receiving hundreds of videos and UGCs uh, when it was at the beginning of these uh, new uh, smartphones, I thought, you know what? There are, there's so many content out there and we are selecting which ones to broadcast. What if there was a platform that people could upload their videos and just broadcast whatever they want to without me making the editorial decision that this is right and that is wrong? Yeah, I love this idea with uh, Your Time TV. Let me ask you a little bit about that, and I'll come back to Iran International. So so why why would we need your time in an era where we have um, uh, Instagram or YouTube? or uh, I mean, can't people uh, upload their videos? And Instagram is, is open in Iran. Isn't it, isn't it possible for people to do that? Why would they need Your Time TV? Well, if you open your Instagram and go to the inside section right now, you will see the vast majority of your followers if they are from Iran. They're most probably from Tehran. I'm guessing the second city is either Shiraz or Mashhad, and that's about it. Uh, so Instagram and YouTube uh, are accessible in Iran. Uh, well, YouTube is blocked, but you can use the VPN and get through that. But it's limited to major cities and those who have the access to fast, relatively fast internet, and they can pay the overseas bandwidth. As you probably know, there are two uh, there are two internet in Iran, if you like. If you use the local traffic, the charges are less. If you use international traffic, the charges are higher. So if you open uh, a, a non-Iranian platform like Instagram or YouTube, you are paying a premium to watch that. Nevertheless, there are important platforms, but they don't reach to as many Iranians as you want to. Satellite is still the best means of communication for reaching to millions of Iranians, even in the smaller, smallest villages in Iran. So in your ultimate uh, goal for Your Time TV, it would be, I'm guessing, that people, Iranians within Iran or around the world would um, feed content to Your Time TV and that it would, that millions of people would see this uh, within Iran and around the world on the channel, right? 
exactly i want i want an <laughs> i want an anarchy if you like that's pro-regime anti-regime pro-gay anti-gay whatever your opinion is you have this platform there's no editorial bent you don't you, there is not, no i mean the only control we have is legal control we don't broadcast copyrighted material we don't broadcast extreme violence and we don't broadcast obviously pornography things that are you know we have legal responsibilities right. but beside that if if you're if you even say something against me, we'll, we'll broadcast it. I don't care. You know, I, I'm a firm believer in. I'm going to make a video saying bad things about you, just to, just to see if if you'll post it in prime time. Go for it. I'm sure you're not afraid. You're the guy who called uh, the LA TV channel from Dubai when you were 17. <laughs> you can you can handle it. What's the status of your Time TV right now? Where where are you at with it? It's growing organically. I obviously I don't have. Uh, that much financial resources, everything is going from my pocket. And uh, content-wise, it's doing well, but commercially, it's not doing the way I wanted it to do because my my initial plan was to provide this platform. And my assumption was that a lot of Iranians in North America and Europe, they want to broadcast their content to Iran. So they're going to use this platform. And then after a while, I can charge them, you know, a premium per minute to broadcast their content. But what happened later on was the vast vast majority of my users are from iran so they're produce, producing the videos in iran and broadcasting to iran which is great i mean it's a platform it's giving them a voice but um, hard, hard to I monetize hard to monetize but uh, because you know obviously the economy situation in iran is not great and uh, also legally there are not many ways that you can take money from Iranians inside Iran, but technically and legally, it's a challenge. Let me uh, finish off by asking you a little bit about your, your show and your gig at Iran International, which, by the way, uh, is doing really well. You've sort of caught fire with this program, right? Yeah, yeah apparently. I mean, it seems to be doing well, yeah. So there is a... Uh, you, you alluded to this earlier. You talked about it. This, there's, there's a, a paradox here where you're working for a network like Iran International. You, you are covering a country, Iran, that you cannot get a lot of access to, um, which for a journalist, for any of us who work in the media, that, that is a conundrum, that, uh, especially if that is your focus. How do you approach that as a broadcaster? It's a it's a challenge day and night every day. I mean, I know I I know that the vast majority of Iranian government officials is not going to talk to us. But every day when there is a story, I try to make some calls and email them. You know, today we had this Iranian vaccine. I emailed the firm that is claiming to have produced this vaccine. I emailed you know the organization behind them. We try to call them. Uh, with the hope that maybe someone decides to, you know, break the rules and talk to us, but they don't. And then in the lack of their presence, you have to rely on their own websites and news agencies to see what was their perspective and try to do the devil advocate when you're talking to your guests, which sometimes can be seen as, you know, being pro-regime, which is the last thing I want to do, but, you know, you have you have to give the full picture and... That's really challenging. It's not just the people in Iran. I mean, I, I, I know even with Rook, it can be difficult doing interviews with people who uh, travel to Iran because they don't want to say things that may jeopardize their status or may put them in trouble with authorities there. H how do you handle this reality in your interviews? 
I mean, even even if you get the interview, then you've got someone who's not giving you a lot. You know what I mean? They're, they're kind of being very careful with their words. And uh, so, t- so tell me how you deal with that. It, it's very difficult. I mean, it happens that sometimes we have stories that are not political at all. It can be a technical story. It can be a tech story. It can be a healthcare story. We're going to talk to a doctor or an expert on the internet, for instance. And they're going to be, please don't ask me political questions. You know, my mom's are is in Iran or I'm visiting Tehran next week, you know. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, for God's sake, we're just asking very basic questions. Why is right. there a government in place that would, you know, put people in jail for talking to a TV channel? It's just insane. But then there are people who are inside Iran and they take the risk and they talk to us. And some of them face, you know, uh, difficult uh, uh, challenges, but... You know, but the problem with Iranian government is you never know. It's like COVID. It can be a mild symptom. You can die. <laughs> oh, dear. Right. Yes. Well, uh, listen, I mean, I asked you in general about, all right, uh, we talked about the BBC taking stick from uh, um, people in the Iranian diaspora, people who have certain ideas about the BBC Persian and, 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 and criticizing it. I'm sure it happens on a personal level for you, too. I'm assume there's, I assume there's no shortage of armchair critics in the audience while you're anchoring at Iran International. I know... You, your answer is going to be it's part of the job. I'm used to it. I've I've, I've seen you. Uh, you've been asked this question, uh, and you say, "Oh, well, it comes with the territory. They can say what they want." But but really, how do you handle it? Really, I handle it with the belief that uh, no matter what my opinion is, these are just words, and people are entitled to their opinion. It doesn't matter if I like it or not. Um, I don't even really believe in cyberbullying or things like that. Uh, I know it's controversial to say that, but I think you should be able to say whatever you want to say. It if doesn't it's in hurt your... you when somebody says no. this person is a horrible supporter of the regime or whatever they say about you on the internet? No, they have zero impact on my life. You know, I have a relatively comfortable life in London. You know, I uh, I don't see them every day. I don't need to read them. If I don't like to read them, I can just close my Twitter, you know, and go on my balcony and smoke a cigar. You know, it it doesn't matter. And <laughs> and, and listen, e- even the president of the United States, if you go on his Instagram or Twitter page, there are millions of people who are, you know, saying all sorts of things to him. Yes. Should he care? You know, he's the most powerful man. Uh, in the world, sadly, I'm not- sadly, I actually do wish he cared at times. But uh, <laughs> but I, 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 your point is well taken. If we do this interview fifteen years from now, I mean, it occurs to me that you're. Uh, uh, I don't want to go too overboard in, in saying that you're a, a a young person who's accomplished a lot because you're in your mid thirties now. But but really, you've done quite a bit. I mean, fifteen years from now, where would you ideally love to have? taken your life 15 years from now such a good question um i hope by 15 years iran is more liberated is a free country that they don't need uh, journalists from overseas to broadcast to them and i can do like a weekly show on fridays maybe something like what you are doing right now and be retired somewhere in uh, south of spain or west coast of the united states 
I loved all of that except when you compared it to Rook. If, if only this felt like retirement, this feels like <laughs> I mean, it's exhausting. Yeah, but, but I mean, it's not it's not a nine to five everyday job. I mean, broadcasting every day is is dude. Is this really is twelve hours a day. We don't have a network. It's a it's like you know I I I, have, I don't have any other life right now. This is just like getting these episodes out. You've forgotten you've forgotten your roots. What it's like to come from when you're not at a fancy right. network. Well, th- th- then I need to have a lot of money to to hire. There as you many go. Yeah. So I'm just, you know, opening the studio, coming and doing my interview and that's and perfect. We all we uh, listen, the answer I think is we all want to be Oprah at some point. Exactly. That would be the ideal. You get to do the interview and everybody else does all the work. Um let me ask you a final question and you forgive me if this is it feels a little twee or cheesy or something, but I actually mean it earnestly because I you know, the intent of this program, uh, well there's all kinds of things that we want to do with this program in terms of um, uh, being educational or entertaining or interesting or telling stories. But, but you know, to talk about who we are in terms of our identity as Iranians in the diaspora, uh, you and I, you grew up in Iran, I grew up in London and, and then in Canada, but we have this common connective tissue. So as someone who grew up there, wanted to leave, went to Dubai, found yourself in, in London, now broadcasting back to your former fellow citizens in Iran. What does it mean, Fardad, to be Iranian for you? What does it mean to be Iranian? It's such a good question. Uh, I I mean, my answer is, I mean, I'm a very pragmatic person, and I think my answer is not going to be as sentimental as you probably hoped it be. I really believe countries are just places that we were born in, you know, my parents were Iranians. I became Iranian. Uh, I really hope that Iran is one day free and people can enjoy the freedom that people have in democracies. Uh, but being an Iranian for me personally doesn't mean much, to be honest. I'm, I, I, I truly believe I'm, I'm a global citizen. Uh, and if I could... Uh, live in another country, I think I would live in the United States. I really like America. I think it's a beacon for hope with all the mistakes it made during its, its history so far, but it's a still a beacon of hope for freedom and uh, for many people around the world. It's the only country that people have created, you know, that you can be black or white or anything in between and be American. For the most part. I really appreciate your candor answering that question that is a that is a very candid response and i i you that was a rook response and i really appreciate that although you even earlier you even had a less sentimental version of that which is you said my parents happen to have sex in iran so i'm an iranian I, yeah I, uh, because i think I, that's, I, just, I think I, that'll I, set a new standard for for non-sentimental but i i i <laughs> But I appreciate I mean, it. I mean, I mean, mathematically, that's true. I mean, f- physically, that's true. I mean, I had. I mean, I'm, I'm proud of the things that I've achieved, not the things I had no control over. Being born in Iran, I had zero control over that. You know, my parents were Iranian. What, where, what else could I do? Uh, but you know, working hard or you know, doing good journalism or helping people, being nice to each other. These are the things that we should be proud of, not the skin of the color of our, our skin or. Uh, the name of the country on our passport. Very powerfully and poignantly said. I, Farad, uh, Farad Saad, I, I, I must thank you so much 
for the time you've given us, for your candor. And um, uh, it's also been an education getting to talk to you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for doing this today. And by the way, I don't think you've done very many interviews in English, have you? No. Uh, no, I, th I don't think I've... Uh yeah, I've done like a few on BBC Word and BBC Arabic, maybe. But, the, but not I mean, about not about myself, about other things. Yeah. Well, exactly, and and yeah. your English is fantastic, and as it should be. But um, I I'm thrilled that we did this in English, and I'm thrilled to be able to have this much time with you. Thank you so much for this. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Khudafis. Khudafis. Fahdad Farazad, a prominent Iranian-British journalist, anchor, entrepreneur. He is the founder of the Your Time TV channel and the host of The Lead Show on Iran International. Fahdad joined us from London, England today. The Rook team have reassembled here. Captain Reza, Groovy Shaya, the fabulous Keon, Faradad Farasad. Cool guy. Mm -hmm. uh, I liked his uh, statement in the end how he doesn't he doesn't think being Persian, for example, is something that people should judge on. You, what value you bring to the world is what he wants to be judged on. And that's something I forget because I'm quite proud of my heritage, my culture. So I a lot of times I look at that as a plus, which... He is not as attached to nationality in general right. or that kind of identifying himself mm -hmm. that way, uh, and um, which is very interesting, especially given that he's a broadcaster on a network that's broadcasting to the country that which he was born. Right. So there's all kinds of complexity there. But as I said, I mean, refreshingly candid. I, I think he's a, it's clear he, you know, when I asked him if he's a libertarian, he said, yeah, I am. Mm -hmm. That seems clear to me. He's, he, he believes freedom is paramount in every way, including the, you know, doesn't want the chains of ethnicity or nationality. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and um, so that was uh, fascinating actually yeah. to hear somebody even not, create the postulate of wanting to say oh of course i am attached to iran you know he was right. just very candid about it oh, that's where i was born but you know uh i'm happy to live in america or yeah. britain i've got a good life here see that's what i expect from persians to be like oh it's you it's, it's a great honor to be persian and this and that but you didn't get that from tom him. cruise tom <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> captain reza yeah, I mean, he it, it reminded me of a bit, especially the last part where he's like, "You should be proud of your achievements." It's, it's uh, there was a bit by George Carlin, an old like older comedian legend, mm -hmm. who said, "Pride is something that should be made uh, upon an achievement, not not an accident of birth." It's sort of what he was trying to say. Are you saying the fact that we discovered Sharab two thousand years ago is not an achievement? Oh, it is for the person who discovered it. <laughs> 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 yeah. No, I'm joking, of course. But uh, uh, yeah, he's. he's He's a very candid guy and very confident. Very confident. Um, I like him and good for him. I mean, I think I say good for him, man. Yeah. he's in his thirties. He's done a lot. He's 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 making it happen. I, you know, to be an anchor guy at his level and and to have come from Iran, Dubai, it, that's a lot of work. Yeah. He has clearly put in the hours. I oh, bet yes. you he he. I bet you he works. You know, long long hours to to maintain this kind. And of And it's career. not like he's denouncing his nationality or anything for people who may misconstrued his latest comment. What all he's trying to say, I think my my take on it is that. I'm Iranian by birth, American, 
British or Canadian or whatever the hell, whatever the other nationality is by choice, like mm. and because he's migrated, and that's that's absolutely. He fine. reminds me a bit of you, actually, Rezo. Does he? Yeah, good-looking guy, young guy who's a Appreciate hustler, it. getting stuff done. I mean, in his case, he's successful, but you know, it's. <laughs> Okay. In my case, yeah. I'm working for Rook. <laughs> exactly. Aww. In your case, it's you know, bottom of the barrel. You're doing some work on Rook. Aww. Nah, man, you're the best. You're the best. Hey, Listen, you're Captain Reza, director of Rook, hey. and you're a great. Uh, you're an actor. You're a filmmaker. That's what he reminds me of you. You're you're making things happen. Uh, Groovy Shia, do you have anything to add to this conversation? Uh, I, can, I can add another thing. I see. Yes. Yeah. Do you know where is Farahzad? And what? What? That's his last name. Yes, yes. but it's. Uh, do you know Reza? Farah? I've heard of Farah. It's an area, yeah. isn't it? It's an area in, in Tehran. Tehran. Yeah. It has Farah in it. Uh, it's uh, yeah, actually, okay. <laughs> kind of yeah. Farahzad would be of Farah, like a yeah. child of Farah, yeah. right? Yeah. Actually, it's a place in kind of northwest of Tehran, and people uh, go there and uh, use. Uh, Kelyun, shisha hookah, hookah, oh. and drink tea and oh. yeah, yeah, it's a hangout Usual, place. Yes, it's an area. It's like Kensington Market. Exactly. Exactly. Uh-huh. Actually, it's like Kensington Market. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And that's a Toronto uh, reference. Yeah, and there is a or a, a British reference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there is a um, kind of proverb which is said that "Tabegife man miram farahzad chai mikhoram miam." It means that I'm so smart when you say f- at the beginning of Farazad, I will go there, drink tea and come. Oh, <laughs> very nice. You know what I love about Shia? He'll always find some kind of poetic or historic <laughs> reference yeah. to every guest. And it's always <laughs> different and interesting. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, but it's usually a corrective. He's usually <laughs> trying to fix something that you said wrong. And then in, in the process teaches you something. Uh, well, uh, that is uh, very helpful. That's very, very, very <laughs> no, that's very, really interesting to know. I wonder if Farad even knows that. <laughs> we'll have to call him and let him know. Uh, get, get him back on the line. <laughs> I'm sure he does know. Uh, well, thank you for your the little roundup on our uh, friend Farad Farasad. It was great to have him on the program. Let's get, it's Monday. It's towards the end of the show. That can only mean one thing. Letters of the week. Right, half letters recap, half dance party. <laughs> Not as good as Chef Host Zara's no, uh, theme, no, no, but it's no. okay. The I'll Chef Host theme is. <laughs> he gets a special one. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit better than the show, the Chef Host theme. <laughs> Let's just play that and, you know, make that an episode. Reminds right. me of Ratatouille. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what do we got, Keon? All right, so last week's installment of It's Persian to Us, I talked about the fact that... It's al- all Persian to us. It usually is. Yeah. Uh, I talked about the fact that alcohol was first discovered by a Persian named Zakaria Razi. Yes. So on YouTube, we have a Alex Askari wrote, Razi named his finding of alcohol in Arabic. Alcohol, which means the whole of the substance could be distilled from wine. Oh. See, I don't know. In my research, I found that it had a reference to coal. You know, that like eyeliner, coal. Like there was some kind of like the breakdown of coal. That word was used for alcohol. So I don't, I'm not sure about this. But. It, so what this, Alex Ascari is saying that 
Razi, who was Persian, intentionally named it after an Arabic word? Yeah, it, it, that's a fact. But he's saying that it means the whole of the substance could be distilled from wine. Oh. But in my finding, I found that it meant like it's any substance that can be broken down kind of thing. The, like the word coal, alcohol. But anyway. You know where you can consume those substances? Where? Farazad. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Ah, nicely done. A little area in north of Tehran. <laughs> As well, on last week's show, Jian pointed out the fact that Shia Jun called him uncharismatic oh. when recording our first... I don't, he didn't call me that. He said, to be clear, let's not put words into his mouth. He said, you have no charisma uh, <laughs> upon that, seeing the video. Is that not what I just said? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. It's, it's, no, I'm just pointing out that it was worse than what you said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, on Instagram, we have a Mahbube Khajavi mm-hmm. wrote, So don't argue with Shia and be more charismatic. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> Absolutely correct. I will never argue with dear Shia and I will try to be more charismatic if that's possible. Oh, as well, two, was it two weeks ago, we had our four-part Rook special series titled Why Pink Floyd? An Iranian Obsession, exploring the surprising obsession of Iranians with the legendary British rock band Pink Floyd. Yes. So we have a few people that wrote on that specific series. We have a Pegita Mahmoudzadeh mm. wrote, I have listened to every part of this special. More proof of your intelligence and expertise. You also took the right words and ideas absolutely right out of those conversations in your Pink Floyd countdown list. Thank you, Jian and Rook Media team. Chaste Nabashid and Happy New Year. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Very nice. Thanks for listening to all the parts of that mm-hmm. series. I really encourage people to listen to all four parts of it. There's so much there. So many great guests. Mm-hmm. And then on YouTube, we have Octavia Nightfall. That's a username, I presume, not the actual last name, Nightfall. uh, Wrote, hey, Gian, you're doing a spectacular job. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Ms. Nightfall. (laughs) (laughs) And then we have a Alale Erbalzade wrote, hello, Rook team. A few weeks ago, you guys were talking about Yalda. It means the longest night of the year is over and the sun overcame the darkness. It simply means hope, and we need that the most these days. This is the very first comment from an avid listener. Even though what you said about your mom resonates with me, I disagree with you on one thing. Mm. You said my mom is the sweetest, most wonderful person in the world, Mm -hmm. but I'm pretty sure that my mom is the (laughs) sweetest and most wonderful person in the world. Uh, Well (laughs) said. All right. And now it's time for the letter of the week. You're keeping it economical. Just picked a few of the letters. Just the meat. Yeah. Yeah. The most okay. important one. Yes. Hold on YouTube, we have username Grammy, and the this person's name is Gashosp Nodan. Okay. We, he, yes, it's a he. He wrote, Thank you, Gian, for this series. As a boomer, I fell in love with Pink Floyd, and in brackets he's at N. Cohen, Clapton, Lennon, etc., etc., growing up in London in the 1960s and early 1970s. I had absolutely no idea about the Pink Floyd connection with young people in Iran. After 50 plus years as a devoted fan, I believed I knew why I loved Pink Floyd. But you have now given me food for thought. I am now trying to place my decades-long dedication to Pink Floyd in context with your guests' comments. Lots to reflect on on these dark days on Earth. Thank you for giving me so much food for thought. Best wishes for 2021. 
Very oh, nice. Thank oh, you very much. So nice. Lovely letter. Yeah, it was. I had no idea Garshas was a boomer. I, I, you know, we've I heard from Gashas before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, but why did you so not think Gashas? I, I thought he's uh, kind of, for example, same as my age, and uh-huh. yeah. But I thought so too, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Okay. It's interesting. <laughs> Does that affect the letter of the day? No, no. No. He still gets the letter of the week <laughs> yeah. status. Yeah. All right. No. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Again, Shia just <laughs> completely blindsides you. Did you know that there is an area of. Rasht, that is called Gashasp. They <laughs> smoke the hookah in Rasht for Gashasp. And then they, after they say, Man, to vachti ke gofti, Ga, man, raftam Gashasp by Gashasp. Shai, you're my favorite person on earth. All right, thank you very much. The fabulous Keon, the Captain Reza, Groovy Shy. That's full time for Rook today. Thank you so much, everybody. Remember, for all things Rook, the hub of all things Rook, please check out our website, rookmedia.com, where, for instance, you can see the entire Pink Floyd series and recap all in one place. Check out all our episodes, our gallery, and our patrons' support page. We would love you to check that out, too, and support us if you are so inclined. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Producer Susan, Ponta the Artist, Thoughtful Degin, the Fabulous Keon, Savvy Rohan, Master Muhammad, Araya Merdad, Captain Reza and Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you've not done so already. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Happy 2021 again. Mizunbashi. Bashi.